0: Opinions expressed by this podcast are not representative of our workplaces, families, friends, enemies, pets, or other entities that may associate with us, despite our opinions.
1: Unelectables, and on Facebook at Unelectables Pod. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It is the first federal election edition of the Unelectables. I am Joey of the Enlightened Savage, and as always, I'm Kirk Schmidt, and. Things have gone absolutely haywire since we last recorded. Uh, The writ dropped nine days ago. We are nine days into the federal election and it feels like we're on day 412, Kirk. Well, we pretty much are considering the the amount of campaigning that's happened uh, over the last year. Now, you had your um, election bingo card ready to go the last time we talked. Did you have Justin Trudeau in blackface appearing on The Daily Show? Uh, on your bingo card. Well, the special card I bought, yeah.
0: <laughs> but it's, that certainly wasn't a uh, an
1: expected um, issue. No, but it is one that came up and it is something we're going to discuss tonight, folks. Um, we're we're going to talk about the campaign thus far. We're going to talk about the role that war rooms play in campaigns. We're going to talk about some actual policy, you know, just for a change of pace. Uh, And and that's not to say that there's not a ton of stuff going on in municipal politics, a ton of stuff going on in provincial politics. But given that we're right smack smack in the middle of an election campaign right now, we are 31 days from Election Day as we record this on September the 20th. So we are going to uh, spend this entire episode talking about the federal election because that's the one you're going to be voting in before anything else unless we very much uh, get a surprise.
0: Now, of course, there, there was, you know, just to divert from federal for just a moment,
1: mm-hmm. there was an election in Manitoba. There was an Since election in Manitoba, the yes. And uh, the, uh, the progressive conservatives, one of the few progressive conservative parties left, um, actually won that election. They called it a year early uh, and got a mandate from the people, not quite as strong as they got in the previous election, but certainly still a majority government, and they're going to be plowing ahead with... Uh, with their plans to, um, uh, to uh, continue to rebuild the economy in, uh, in Manitoba. All right, that's enough for provincial politics. Okay, oh, by the way, hi, Blake. We, we talked about Manitoba, and we said it three times, so you should appear somewhere. All right, Kirk, let's talk about the elephant in the room, which, is, which may have Justin Trudeau on the back of it, to be clear. <laughs> it's Justin Trudeau, for, for those of you who've been living under a rock, Uh, Just a couple of days ago, um, Time magazine uh, released uh, an image of Justin Trudeau dressed uh, in uh, Arab costume, wearing brown face makeup, um, and uh, appearing at a end of year uh, school function as a teacher, as a 29-year-old teacher. Um, The theme of the party was Arabian Nights, and so he dressed up as, he says, Aladdin Uh, and this would have been in June of of 2001. Um, When he came out to address that issue, Justin Trudeau mentioned there was a second incident from when he was in high school when he he dressed up as Harry Belafonte uh, with blackface and uh, a wig and uh, sang uh, the song Deo in the school talent show. Uh, And it has since come out that there is at least one more incident where uh, Justin Trudeau uh, put on makeup to, to uh, portray himself as, as a, a different race. So the question here is, Kirk, how bad is this? This is international news. We're, tw- uh, we're, we're just a 31 days from voting day. Um, how bad is this for Justin Trudeau?
0: Well, let's separate that into a few different sections. Let's compartmentalize it a bit. Okay? okay. So, in terms of things not to ever do, this is in it. Okay. Okay. There there are many, many reasons we could go into why brownface and blackface is just not something you should do. But, basically, it's, it's an 11 on the 1 to 10 scale of things you should not do. Okay. Okay. So, let's let's do that that's just as a human that's that's as somebody who uh who considers themselves progressive and and um, and all of that so there's that piece there's the second piece of of what is this going to do in the election mm-hmm. and the question is, will it do anything the The thing is from a strategic perspective um the liberals have been going after after um, Andrew Scheer in terms of his vote on gay marriage in the early 2000s, right? right? And the conservatives have effectively been countering with, you know, well, that was 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. So if if it was fair game for the liberals to attack the conservatives for something 16 years ago, then theoretically it's fair game to attack... Justin Trudeau on something that happened
1: nearly 20 years ago. Right. right? Now this is not to, to draw lines and say one is equal to the no, other no, no, or not, anything not, not like that.
0: No, but it, but it's it's more looking at it from from that, you know, what's what's good for the goose is good for the gander type right. type uh, electoral tit for tat. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem with this is it was a horrible decision to have done even in in the 2000 in the early 2000s. Um, but it's it's taking away from what this election should be about which is policy. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about policy later, but the fact of the matter is this is just, you know, everybody digging their heels into stuff that was happening 15 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, now will it will it do something with the polls? We're going to have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. The the most recent poll, you and I were talking offline before, most recent poll uh, it doesn't show any any major change, but of course those are going to be based on the last few days. Usually, is is how it's done, right? There's usually a few days of of um, of questions, and then and then that gets compiled. So it will be interesting to see what happens. Uh, one with with um, with any polls that come out kind of early next week, mm-hmm. and then and then kind of as. Time goes on. If this issue tends to stay in the news, mm-hmm.
1: um, what it will do. Now, now, I almost hate to ask this, but, I mean, God forbid, Kirk, what if there are more pictures? Well, and, and so that's the
0: other question here is <laughs> what don't we know, right? Like, like the, this is the type of thing where, uh,
1: you know, J- Justin Trudeau has been an MP for years now. Mm-hmm. He right. was elected MP in two thousand eight. He's been an MP for eleven years. He's been the leader for several years now. He's been the Prime Minister of Canada
0: for several years, and only now is this coming up. So that that always begs a bit of a question of what else is there? Mm-hmm. The other thing is is we know that that or or it seems like even the the uh, even his own war room was not aware of this, right? which is a completely other issue. And I, I think we'll get into that a little bit, mm-hmm. especially when we talk about war rooms. But but that's a complete other issue as well. is not even that, that the general public doesn't know about this. But the liberals didn't know about this. I mean, every single person who's out there campaigning on a liberal platform, whether they agree with the leader or not, is going to take a bit of a hit. Mm-hmm. Even if they're not, you know, even if they don't like Justin Trudeau, you know, even if, if uh, they voted for Martha Hall Finley in, you know, several years ago when, when Trudeau became leader, they're going to take a hit at the doors. And I'm sure that there's there's a lot of, uh, a lot of angry candidates at, at this. Well, there are a
1: lot of angry candidates, right? There are a lot of, of angry and, and upset and disappointed and, and hurt uh, voters and and just general members of the public that that are looking at the situation and they're going, okay, this is a guy who I thought had my back. Now, to his credit, Trudeau has done a pretty good job of apologizing. And one of the yes. things that he's noted for even amongst his political adversaries is that he's good at apologizing because he tends to do it a lot. Uh, but... um. You know, despite the fact that he's been making these apologies, the the fact of the matter remains that, I mean, this this is something that is deeply personal to a lot of people for very good reason. And it speaks to whether or not you can trust the character of this person who you thought you could. And this is a moment when Justin Trudeau is more... um, uh, He's more prone and more um, uh, able to be hurt than at any other point in his political career. Because now, when you make an assertion about Justin Trudeau or you read something on social media about Justin Trudeau, whereas before, you would go, oh, no, that can't possibly be true. I mean, we know who Trudeau is. Trudeau's a good guy. Now you're looking and go, I'm not actually sure what kind of guy Trudeau is and maybe this is true and you're already seeing that there are some hyper partisans on Twitter there are some people on Twitter who just flat-out don't like Justin Trudeau even if they're associated with the Liberal Party hi Warren Um, who are making these sort of suggestions about maybe there's something else out here notice where that hand is placed hey Justin why did you leave that school in the first place you know, and now he's vulnerable to those sorts of suggestions in a way that he wasn't before. And the thing is, we shouldn't feel bad for Justin Trudeau. In no. This. He no, no, no. did this. This is his fault. It's nobody else's fault. He painted himself into this corner quite literally, and he's got to wear this. I mean, now, my bottom line, from my point of view, I mean, I'm a 41-year-old white guy, right? I'm of German descent. He didn't, you know, put on a brown shirt and goose-step around a rally. He didn't, you know, put on a pointed helmet or lederhosen and, and make fun of my culture. Justin Trudeau doesn't have to explain himself to me. But Justin Trudeau has to explain himself to the millions of people who he put personally offended with the decision that he made. And one quick apology on the airplane and one town hall in Saskatoon, uh, which he did yesterday, is not going to stop people from feeling the way they rightfully feel and asking some really important questions. Now, I don't get to decide if what he did should have offended people, and I don't get to decide what an appropriate penance would be because it's not me that he was offending, it wasn't my culture that he was cosplaying with. But um, whatever the blowback on this is, this is not a case of somebody making something up to stick it to the guy. This is a case of people finding out something that he consciously decided to do. Multiple times. Multiple times, and that's on him. You know, and and a question that, that should
0: should come up in this, and and not to take away from Justin's responsibility on this. Okay, but but I just want to just want to look at a, a bit of a wider view. How many people thought this was okay? Mm-hmm. Right, like well, let's face it. He did this. There were pictures. They were put somewhere. I mean, my understanding is some of these were in a yearbook.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So, so, so there are multiple levels of people.
1: Being okay with this? Yeah. Or now, I don't know how many students attend Point Gray School where, where Trudeau was a teacher, but let's assume it's a very prestigious, very, very small private sort of academy. And let's say a graduating class there would be 50, right? If he did this at a year-end function where there were, were 50 or 60 people, including parents, including a fellow faculty... Right. that's 50 or 60 people it's not as though they haven't realized over the past 11 years that trudeau is in fact you know a party leader a member of parliament the prime minister of canada They remember the party. You don't remember what everybody was dressed as, but you've leafed through your yearbook at some point in the last 11 years and gone, oh right, that guy's the prime minister. Why is he wearing dark makeup? And even if you haven't done that, as a student or faculty member or graduate of Point Gray School, you know that at some point, on some level, Justin knew... He, He maybe doesn't remember how he's dressed for every party and every Halloween since he was a kid. But he's got that yearbook. He remembers at least one or two of these instances. And the fact that he needed to wait for somebody else to bring it out, that he didn't proactively disclose, at least to his own people. Even if it wasn't a public mea culpa, he didn't let his own people know that this was something that might be coming if you are working in the liberal war room, if you're one of Justin Trudeau's top lieutenants, if you are a senior uh, member of the Liberal Party and this caught you by surprise, that is completely unforgivable. Um, uh, and again, it's Justin's fault. He did it. Well, and it shows a, shows a lack of political maturity in
0: that standpoint, too, in, in not informing your lieutenants on it, mm-hmm. right? And in some way. And, and, you know, there are ways to do it without actually letting them
1: know, right? Like, you can put things in envelopes. You can. Um, and I've had this discussion with a lot of candidates where I say, look, you can never, ever, ever allow your campaign manager, even if you're just running for a, for a school board seat, you can never let your campaign manager be surprised by anything. Okay? If you got pulled over for a DUI when you were 17... Even if you don't want to sit down your campaign manager and say, I got pulled over for a DUI at 17, you got to write that down. You put it in an envelope, you put a big red one on the envelope, you seal it, you hand it to your campaign manager and you say, look, if somebody calls you and says, I heard this rumor about me, call me. And if it's true, I'm going to say open envelope one. Or I'm going to say open envelope too, you know. You have to provide your people with disclosure. You have to give them some way to defend you, well, or or at least to know to know what to to deal with.
0: Yeah, right. To know to
1: know that it's coming. Some things are indefensible. I don't think you can defend dressing up as blackface as a 29 year old. No, you know. But at least let your people know this might be coming. And again, it's not like he didn't know. Well, it's not like he forgot that he painted himself. And and. This, this goes back to a little bit of,
0: of that political maturity thing again, too, in that, you know, it's one thing if you're 17 and you make a poor decision and, uh, you know, 20 years later you decide randomly to run for politics and, and, you know, all of a sudden you got the political bug. This was a Trudeau. Yes. Right? Like Like this, you know, there was kind of a level of politics was always possible and you're you're part of one of the most infamous political families of the late 20th century in yep. Canada. You know,
1: <laughs> he, he grew up in the public eye, right? And whether or not he ever expected that he was going to run for office, people definitely knew who he was. They knew the name. In looking at him, it's not hard to see who his father is. Even if you don't know the name, the resemblance is pretty striking. Unless you're wearing a tinfoil hat and you think that you know Fidel Castro is his father, which get off Twitter, delete your account. But you know, you know, you're growing up as a public figure, right? There's a reason that the Bush twins made mistakes but never went completely off the rails. Because their father was the president and they knew people were watching. There's a reason Barack Obama's girls might have occasionally made a stupid teenage decision but never went completely off the rails because they knew they were being watched constantly. Especially, you know, and again,
0: teenage... Your brains are not fully developed. You make stupid decisions. We've all done it.
1: Mm-hmm. 29. Yeah. Like, sorry, that that's, that's too far. Yeah. Your brain is fully developed by 29. I'm not saying that none of us has made a bad decision at 29, but we certainly all remember the bad decisions we made at 29. So, I mean, how he comes back from this, what he does to make this right, that's entirely on him. Not in a million years would I suggest anybody feel sorry for him. But there could be some very real political repercussions to this. Because as we know, Justin Trudeau is the only candidate in this election who is being dogged by doubts about his social, uh, social justice and, and social political bona fides, right?
0: Well, and, and so now, now that really brings up the next leader, right? We've got Andrew Scheer. Andrew Shear, never heard of him. Tell me about him. So, Andrew Shear of course um, is not without his own uh, demons, shall we say, in terms of of political views and and more social views within the political space. Mm-hmm. No. Um, so of course there was the vote against same-sex marriage right uh, back in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. 2003 I think. Yeah, and we we talked about this a little bit last podcast yeah. um, because because of course there was there was some question as to whether Minister Goodale uh, also voted against same-sex marriage or not, and things like that. So we had talked about that, but of course, as more came out, there were there was uh, there was a, a bit of a speech that Andrew shear gave mm-hmm. uh, back in Parliament, and um, and and as part of that, there was there was this verbiage of uh, calling a dog's tail a leg doesn't make it a leg, and and that was in reference to. Calling something same-sex marriage
1: does not necessarily make it a marriage, from his point of view. Right now, it, it, as things do on social media, because again, social media is not real life, um, uh, that sort of snowballed into people who who you know were offended by the statement, saying, "Did Andrew Shear just call same-sex couples dogs?" It was, let's face it, it was poor wording. Oh, it was exceptionally poor wording. It was, even knowing what he was trying to say, it was a very poor speech. You watch the video back, you know, oh, that hurts. But, you know, he's 20-whatever-he-is-then, 25 years old. He's a junior parliamentarian. He's just been elected. Um, I mean, I'm still embarrassed by how I speak now at 41, and I have an edit button. Right, he was he was doing it live. Um, he was espousing views that I am fundamentally diametrically opposed to. But even you know, given that he was he, he was speaking poorly, yeah. he stumbled he stumbled Ab- over the analogy. Absolutely, and and yeah, listening to the whole piece, it was
0: it was hard to follow to begin with. Mm-hmm. Much less you know the the poor. Analogies that he chose Mm -hmm. to represent his particular views. Right. Um, But it is the type of thing where, um, when asked about his views on same-sex marriage, um, he hasn't really come out and given uh, concrete answers. Shall we say?
1: No, not at all. Very political answers. He's given extremely political answers. Now he has said, um, and and this is one of my bugaboos. This is one of the things I hate the most. Uh, Well, you know, I was expressing an opinion at that time that was held by Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and just, you know, sort of name-dropping a whole bunch of progressive politicians as though that's going to get the media off the trail of the question. But thank God we have an actual professional media that then continues to ask, okay, but Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and all these other people came back later and said, my views on this have evolved. So, Mr. Scheer, what is your personal view on same-sex marriage? To which he has responded, it is the law of the land, it is a settled issue, and I will not be bringing forward legislation on this issue. Which completely closes the topic for discussion, and everybody can go home and sleep safely and soundly at night, right?
0: Well, well, yeah, the, the law of the land piece is so disingenuous, right? Because going back to junior high social studies, Mm-hmm. Right there are 3 parts to government. There is the executive branch, the legislative branch and the judicial branch, right? Right? The legislative branch is for developing law. That is what it does. So the House of Commons and the Senate are about creating laws. So supporting the law of the land is supporting whatever decision was made by the political body at the time. And a future political body could go and change, and laws change all the time, um, and and even even in terms of, you know, we could we could go into some complex issues, but there are there are laws that even exist right now that have been overturned by the judiciary branch and have not yet been properly changed in the legislation. Mm-hmm. So even saying something as 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 much as I support the law of the land, one ignores that that laws are organic in nature. Uh, but then it also, it, it's also the piece where you're part of the branch that's directly involved with changing those laws. Mm-hmm. So saying I support the law of the land, all it takes is for people to make that change. And he might not put forward legislation. But that doesn't mean that he won't vote for legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, there's a lot of ways that this can happen. It can be you know, through private members' bills. It can be law, um, legislation introduced by the Senate. Mm-hmm. Either way, he hasn't said, I won't vote for a bill that rescinds this, right? He hasn't said, no, I think this has to stay and I won't support you know
1: changing that piece. He said, I support the law of the land. Right. Now, the law of the land in Canada used to be that you had to pay extra money to come in if you were Chinese, Correct, right? That was a blatantly racist law, but it was the law of the land. The law of the land in Alberta used to be that it was mandatory to have the government sterilize somebody who was deemed unsavory so that they wouldn't be able to reproduce. And by unsavory, of course, we mean somebody with lower than average intelligence or propensity for violence or mental illness. That was the law of the land. The government would take away your ability to procreate. So I support the law of the land at that time, and I support eugenics. So <laughs> the law of the landline is, is just dripping with disingenuity. And, and, I mean, what it brings out the possibility of, as you just talked about, is this idea that if there's a conservative party majority in Parliament, a sizable majority, which is not outside the realm of possibility, no. there's still 31 days to go in this campaign. Anything can happen. Um, A private member brings forward a bill and says, um, you know what, Uh, a a conceived baby is a human being from the moment of conception. That is my private member's bill. And a lot of people start to jump on, on the side of this bill in the House of Commons, let's say. Now, Andrew Scheer has been very clear, and the conservatives have been very consistent, that on matters of personal conscience... They will allow a free vote in the House of Commons. So this would be a bill where that would apply. That hypothetical has been pitched before and they've confirmed it would apply in that case. So let's say that private members bill makes it to a vote in the House of Commons and passes. Now whether he voted for it or not, Andrew Scheer is the leader of the Conservative Party. Andrew Scheer in this hypothetical is the Prime Minister. What do you do? The law of the land is now that life begins at conception. Therefore, abortion would be murder. Right. By and the law of the land. So, so what is your actual position on the issue?
0: And so, and so the same thing can happen with same-sex marriage. And, and I mean, that's, the, that's definitely the point we're, we're trying to, to put across. is, I mean, that could change overnight. Mm-hmm. We could basically go backwards and and where all where all these other countries are finally getting this through their their parliament's or, or their their other um, otherwise legislative branches, um, we could go backwards on on simply something as simple as a free vote on a private member's bill. Mm-hmm. Now you know it's important to remember I think it's it's important to, to understand what a, a private member's bill is and does and and all this type of thing. so, there is an order to this happening, right? Like it's it's not like uh, private members' bills necessarily go up or down in, in, um, you know, if it's popular, it, it becomes you know a vote that goes right to the top, right? Like there there is an ordering system that happens, mm-hmm. um, but unlike a government bill of confidence, like the budget or the throne speech or things like that, you can't defeat a government by defeating a private members' bill by by any of their members. So. Any conservative member could put this forward, and even if it gets defeated, it doesn't. It's not, it doesn't affect the government. So that is the ideal way to to put in bills of conscience, mm-hmm. um, because because it gives the ability for for those to go in. Uh, also, uh, private members' bills tend to be more likely to see free votes, anyways, mm-hmm. um, and we do see it, you know, throughout Parliament, even even when when most parties do have whipped votes in general. Um, there are quite often times where private members' bills will be free votes, and and frankly, ha- part of the time it's because not everybody's in the chamber when mm-hmm. when those are happening. But so so there's definitely a mechanism to rescind, repeal, or otherwise alter a law. Right, the law, the law, life. and then and then of course that's where there might be a period of time where. It needs to go to the judiciary because let's face it. I mean, if if the conservatives ended up uh, rescinding same-sex marriage, you can guarantee that that would
1: go then through court challenges, right? And probably be overturned. Probably be overturned. But as with anything in our system, ultimately, democracy can have the final say if a group is motivated enough and is advocating a position that is embraced by enough people who come out and vote to see it pass forward. You can go as far as amending the Constitution if you can get enough people to bother to show up in the various provinces and support that motion. So it it, it can be done if you have the money, if you have the organizational wherewithal, and/or if you're advocating for a position that's popular enough, and let's not forget, provinces also have an additional mechanism, which is the use of, use of the notwithstanding clause, which Quebec has now used to ban uh, religious uh, uh, apparel, yeah, in 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 public servants. So, uh, and and that's another kettle of fish that we're going to talk about on a totally different podcast. Now. But I do want to touch on religion just for one second longer. Um, I have read on social media, which of course is real life, that this whole waffling position that Andrew Shear is holding is because he's one of those scary Catholics. Is he a papist? Is is, is the pope going to be running the federal government if Andrew Shear is elected? I sure hope not. <laughs> um, you know, it...
0: Religion and politics are one of those things where where it's it's probably dangerous to to associate them ever at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, there's you know there there's a lot of Catholics in in Parliament, mm-hmm. you know, and and they most I've been able to uh, see have been able to separate what they might believe from a faith based perspective versus what should happen from. a...
1: Social policy perspective. Right. But isn't it a really scary notion that we would have a Catholic prime minister? I mean, that's almost no. never happened, has it? <laughs> Except for like a lot of them. <laughs> Except for, I think, most of the, with the exception of Stephen Harper, I think we've had Catholic prime ministers in Canada since at least, I'm not sure about Joe Clark. But other than that, we're going back to the 1960s, yeah. since, since we've had a non-Catholic, not counting the, Stephen Harper. I mean, Pierre Trudeau, John Turner was Catholic, Brian Mulroney, uh, Paul Martin, Jean Chrétien, Catholicism does not automatically presume that somebody is going to be fundamentally opposed to a woman's right to choose. And people saying Andrew Scheer is going to do something nefarious here because he's Catholic is just completely disingenuous.
0: Yeah, so I think it would be one thing if if Andrew Scheer came out and said, you know, if the Catholic Church is against this, then we're going to legislate against this. Which... You know anybody using birth control might have trouble with that at that point being, you know because of the Catholic Church's position on that or anybody who's ever gotten a divorce or you know so on and so on and so on right um, in the end it's you know there's a concern always with people who hold, hold religious views partially because um, I don't know that I've ever met a single Catholic ever who subscribes to uh, every article of the catechism of the Catholic Church Right. So so there's kind of a level of people take religion on their own. So so fear with people who tend to be more religious, I think, comes down to um, we don't know what their beliefs are because their beliefs might not actually be based on Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Right. They might say they're Catholic, but not, might not be based on Catholicism. And and we certainly see in the United States, you know, there are definitely cases where um, I'm pretty sure that uh, some of, of Jesus' teachings um, would not be in line with some of the views espoused by um, some some religious uh, Republicans. Well, the meek shall inherit the earth, but build that wall. Right? Yeah, so so it, it's the type of thing where, where there's fear, partially because of what we've seen to our, from our neighbor of the South. There's fear because people do take religion on their own, and we do know that people... Uh, tend to he- hold um, extreme view- views especially when when uh, or or there's there's a more there seems to be more likelihood I would say of people who hold extreme views um, when people are publicly using religion in their political views mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you know it's it's not it's not just because you're religious you're a horrible person in fact you know, you can be a wonderful person you could be a wonder you could be a horrible person as an atheist mm-hmm. Um I think the thing is it's one thing if the views are out, out out there and able to be challenged it's another thing if they're not saying what their views are and I think that's more the fear with Andrew Shear yeah. is is you know if Andrew Shear said look I'm catholic but you know I think that that this should be you know I I I kind of say you know I'm kind of in line with the pope where um you know, I don't believe in it, but it's not my my position to judge this. Um, that authority is is with uh, with God alone, and so you know we're we believe that that we should just keep the law the way it is. You know, if he said stuff like that, I think people would would not be afraid of Andrew Shear's religiosity at all, mm-hmm. right? Um, but but the more views that are not um, not directly put out there, or the more ambiguity that there is between whether something mm-hmm. um, they'll do legislatively will be based on religion or not, that's that's where the fear comes in. When you hear something like, I support the law of the
1: land, mm-hmm. that's where it's like, ugh. Well, and the other part of this too is that it's not as though Catholicism is a small, little understood group. The, the Catholics are a plurality in Canada. They're the largest single denomination of any religious group in the country, right? Um, so for people to, to, to say, well, those scary Catholics, the boogeymen, is, is completely uh, preposterous. I mean, whether or not you ascribe to Catholic teachings, whether you consider yourself a hardcore Catholic or just a lapsed Catholic or a CNE and e Catholic or, or any other denomination of Christian or any faith or no faith... Um, It's just, I I mean, it's reminiscent of when John Kennedy was running for the presidency in the United States, and the difference here is that in the United States, Catholics are not the largest religious group. Uh, Catholics are one of the smaller religious groups, at least among the Christian faiths, so people were asking genuine, earnest questions in the 1960s about whether the White House would be run from Rome. They were genuinely curious as to whether, you know, Catholic doctrine would would mean that nobody in the United States was allowed to serve meat on Fridays at a restaurant. You know, the, first of all, it's not 1960 anymore. It's 2019. And secondly, in this country, in Canada, if you don't know a Catholic, you're just not trying because there are everywhere. I was raised Catholic, you were raised Catholic. Half the people I know were raised Catholic, whether or not they still attend church or consider themselves Catholic. It's not a scary fringe group and if Andrew Shearer just came out and said exactly what you said, he could put this issue to bed once and for all. So it begs the question in a lot of people's minds, why isn't he just saying that? Yeah, so um, and it's a, fair, it's a fair question that only he can answer. Well, let's move on. Okay, let's move on. Now, it hasn't just been about scandal and what's being said or not said or what uh, there's photographic evidence for. What? We, we've actually had some news during the campaign. No. Yes, and the news is... Maxime Bernier will be in the French and English debates.
0: Well, but before we even get to Maxime Bernier in the debates, okay, let's talk about Maxime Bernier versus Maxime Bernier. Oh, Bernier versus Bernier, the Berniers, which is the best of all sauces. <laughs> so, so the, the, I mean, in, in terms of, of funny news, um, a, a member of the Rhinoceros Party, whose legal name is Maxime Bernier, is running against Maxime Bernier in Bernier's riding. Yes. Um, so there will be two Maxime Berniers on the ballot in, and I forget what riding he's in, uh, but there will be two, two Maxime Berniers on that ballot. One will be for uh, the People's Party and one will be for the Rhinoceros Party. I actually don't know what the rules are for what order that name gets in, but I would imagine the, the political party then becomes the... Uh,
1: the alphabetical order? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm <laughs> really, really not sure what the rules are for the ordering of the ballot. It may, it may vary by by writing. Uh, it's going to be the writing of. Uh, I'm going to slaughter this, but Beauce, B-E-A-U-C-E. It's it's in Quebec. That's no doubt a French word, and my clumsy German tongue can't handle it. But um, uh, the two Berniers, along with several other candidates, will be. Uh, contesting that seat in the federal election. So voters in that area are going to have to pay close attention to their ballots, which is the whole point of why the Rhino Party is, is placing this candidate there, because it'll have the candidate's name, and then underneath it will say in smaller type which party they're representing. And if voters aren't careful, they may vote for the wrong Bernier, and I'm not sure which voter would be more upset? The one who wanted to support the People's Party who voted Rhino, or the one who wanted to support the Rhino Party who voted for the People's Party?
0: But, but uh, you know, in, into Bernier in the debates. Um, it's an interesting change. It is. We did talk about this last time, about, yeah. you know, what, what would be, and, and we talked about this even during the Alberta stuff, you know, what should be the criteria where, where somebody is in the debate. Mm-hmm. Um, Maxime Bernier is the only member of his party that, that uh, was a member of parliament prior to uh, dissolution. Um, But he wasn't voted in, in the People's Party. He was voted in the Conservative Party.
1: Right, right. Now, the, the People's Party of Canada itself is still very much a work in progress, even now. Um, nine days into the election, if you go to their website, they've got a small section that uh, talks about their specific platform and then it says, for anything not covered, please click here to see Maxime Bernier's policy positions when he was running for the leadership of the Conservative Party in 2016. That's actually part of their website. So um, it's still very much a work in progress, but the consortium, which decides who gets to be in and not in this debate, Uh, justified the change by saying we brought in some polling that showed us that they have a legitimate chance of electing more than two members of parliament, at least based on the polling that we were looking at. Now, we don't know whose polling they were looking at, but that raises some interesting possibilities because among the People's Party's candidates are popular former uh, city council members, and in one case, in the greater Toronto area, it's Rob Ford's widow. Mm-hmm. Renata is running for the People's Party of Canada. So we're not sure which writings the consortium identified as, as being at least potential pickups for the People's Party. But it does change the political landscape a little bit. And it's really going to change the debates. But I, I kind of thought that the consortium just brought them in because you know, they knew that he would actually show up. Well, there's that too, right? I mean, and that's always the challenge with debates. And I say this as somebody who's moderated a lot of debates. People who expect or think that they're in the lead will often not show up to a debate because they're just going to be attacked for two and a half hours when they could be doing other things. Now, on a local level, for a small campaign, that means door knocking. Right? I can talk to 200 people one-on-one in the time that I would spend sitting here while you yell at me. So I'm not going to come to your debate. But um, on the larger scale of things, you often see this with incumbent prime ministers or with people who expect that they're going to win, where they just say, you know, I don't think I'm going to come to that debate. And we've already seen that at least once in this campaign with Justin Trudeau before the whole brown brownface, blackface scandal broke. Uh, electing not to show up at a debate. Now, it's not as though he changed his mind last minute. He said well in advance he wouldn't be there. But it's still kind of a bad look. But you understand it. If you're Elizabeth May, you're going to go to every debate where there's a camera. If you're Justin Trudeau, you've got 300 and some odd
0: ridings to visit. So Bernier is going to be at the next one. He is. Now, who does that benefit the most, other than Bernier? Well, that... See that's a hard question. I think you and I disagree on this one because, because I actually think that Bernier being there benefits the liberals. Okay, and I I'm think done. and I think you're you're of an opposite mind. But but here's what I see is is uh, the conservatives uh, you know going back into conservative history, uh, we've seen fracturing and then mending together and fracturing and mending together. I mean that seems to be the pattern of the Conservative Party of Canada. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so thinking back to the nineties when the reform party broke off, um, the reform party tended to bring in some of the more, um, more extreme right wing, uh, individuals. Um, so the conservative, the progressive conservative party was far more of the big tent, um, you know, slightly to the right party. And, and in order to defeat the liberals basically was decided we need to work together, um, I see the People's Party again as that fracturing, as that that movement for the far extreme right, um, fracturing of the Conservative Party, and and so the thing is, if Maxime Bernier and, and he's not a dumb guy. I mean, he's left briefcases where he shouldn't have left briefcases, but he, he's not a dumb guy. Like he he's he's quite intelligent. He's quite well read. Um, he's he's well spoken. Um, so what's gonna what what can potentially happen is people who don't agree with Andrew Scheer, because there are a significant portion of people in the Conservative Party who don't, um, if they are on the farther right-leaning side, they might be more inclined to to support someone like Maxime Bernier, especially as he's gaining momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I see it actually as an opportunity for Maxime Bernier to carve off of the Conservative Party of Canada. And if that happens... I think that's where the advantage goes to the liberals because the votes that that effectively would have would have existed for a conserv for the single conservative party now has some fracture
1: mm-hmm. now there's some logic to that certainly speaking mathematically but I think if you, if you look a little closer there's there's a big difference between what happened in the 90s with the Reform Party and the and the Progressive Conservatives and what's happened with the People's Party and that is that Um, When reform broke off from the Conservatives, reform very smartly focused geographically. They said, okay, we are now the party of Western Canada. And they made their entire platform about Western Canada. The West wants in was their campaign slogan. And resultantly, what they got is they got this huge groundswell of support in Western Canada. Now, they were absolutely useless in Ontario and all points east of there. But they elected so many people... From just the provinces they were focused on, that they actually became the the official opposition, or at least the de facto official opposition behind the block.
0: Yeah, they they were two votes short, right? Or two two seats short, right?
1: uh, They were the they they were the unofficial opposition because they were the only federalist party that was sitting in opposition.
0: And I should say, going into an election, um, just talking about political history, sorry to sorry to railroad you for a moment here, not at all, but they they were two seats behind the block, Mm -hmm. or two, sorry, two seats away from having official opposition status. Um, And those two seats, uh, or they lost two seats by 300 votes combined Mm -hmm. in that election. So, so, you know, just for, you know, our hammering the message in to go to vote, just remember that this happened in the nineties, that the reform party would have been official opposition had it not been for 300 votes in, in a couple of writings.
1: I, th- I think they were both in Alberta, actually.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. anyways, now, and, but back to your argument.
1: Yeah, now the other part of that, too, is that at the same time that the Reform Party was ascendant and that they captured 52 seats in that election, the Progressive Conservative Party was absolutely destroyed in that election. They came out with, was it two or three seats? Yeah, I think it was two. It was two. They went from a majority government to holding two seats, And the Reform Party, I mean, they took 52 seats from Western Canada, but even if those 52 seats had still voted progressive conservative, they still would have just barely held on to official opposition. So the difference here is is quite pronounced in that the Conservative Party of Canada is a very strong, very centralized uh, party that has support across the country, not as much as they would like in some places like Atlantic Canada, or in some places like mainland uh, British Columbia. But they've got a lot of support around the country, and, and they just simply put cannot lose in many of those traditional uh, uh, conservative strongholds in Western Canada. Um, whereas the People's Party of Canada, it's an unknown quantity running, by and large, a lot of unknown candidates. And I think if you're a conservative voter... And you're going into the polling place and you're saying, okay, so I need to make sure Justin Trudeau isn't the prime minister anymore. Because my fundamental motivation for voting is, God, I hate Justin Trudeau. Am I going to vote for the conservative party, even if I don't necessarily like Andrew Scheer? Or am I going to take a chance, I hate to use this term, but I'm going to use it, split the vote... And vote for this party, the candidate I've probably never heard of, the party whose policies are largely untested and untried, and, and just sort of take my chance and hope that, you know, because the reality is, writings that were going to vote liberal are by and large still going to vote liberal. So you've got conservative voters actually asking themselves, do I vote strategically or do I vote with my heart? Now, let's not forget. In the conservative leadership race that Andrew Scheer won, until the very final ballot, Maxime Bernier was ahead in that race. That's right. So almost a full 50% of the party preferred Bernier and Bernier's policies, which are now the People's Party policies, to Scheer. But... Shear is the leader of the Conservative Party, which has the money, which has the organizational wherewithal, which has the candidates, and which has the infrastructure. Bernier, who you might have liked more, is a party of one. Right. And so, who do you throw your support to? The one that your heart says you should support? The one that you've been, you know, wishing had won the leadership? Or do you go with the one who has the best chance at unseating Trudeau? I would argue, if you're watching those debates, and you're watching Bernier speak, every time Maxime Bernier says something that sounds crazy to mainstream Canadians, that works to the benefit of Andrew Scheer. Because people who were soft liberal voters, who were going, well, I, I don't think I trust Scheer, but I don't love Trudeau, and this brown face, black face thing has me waffling on whether or not I should vote for him. If you listen to Bernier speak, and you are somebody with social progressive ideals, you're gonna go, "Oh man, no! I gotta vote for Shear. I gotta because Shear sounds absolutely mainstream compared to this guy."
0: Yeah, I, I think my my issue is going to be where where we're going to what we're gonna see what happened with, happen with Bell weather ridings, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't see cases where the the People's Party is gonna take. Seats away from the Conservatives. Right. I think where we're going to see the effect of the People's Party is going to be in the ridings that could go Liberal, could go Conservative. Mm-hmm. And there are people who are going to vote for, for Maxime Bernier and his party because of its policies. Right. Because, um, not you know, as much as they may hate Trudeau... There are going to be people who are going to vote based on policies and based on the personality of the leader that they like, mm-hmm. and and that's more where I think the advantage comes in. is is not so much not so much in general, you know, People's Party taking away com- from conservatives, but just pulling enough to to allow the liberals to win those bellwethers. Now that said, um, those bellwethers may be already on the conservative side thanks to. Uh, what has just come out with, with Justin mm-hmm. um but that that's kind of where i saw it but okay it, it, you know it's it's hard to say i think there's probably good arguments for both mm-hmm. um, it'll be interesting to see how bernier handles himself uh in in the the debate and and you know it, like thinking back to the block um that was one thing that that gil ducep was really good at like if, if it weren't for the fact that he was a separatist, you know, he kind of... There were times when... when I, I especially remember uh, when it was Paul Martin and Stephen Harper and, and Gilles Duceppe and uh, Jack Layton. And the way the three were bickering and Gilles Duceppe, um, you know, really focusing on policy and what they were going to do for Quebec, he, he almost came off as the most, most uh, statesmanly. Mm-hmm. um in in that one debate. Yeah. And so so you know if Maxime Bernier can pull that off if he doesn't become just this yappy dog attacking attacking Trudeau and and really focuses
1: on the policy mm-hmm. he could do a lot of damage. Right. Either way. Well, because in the days after a debate, right, what you don't see are are 15-minute clips where people are discussing in-depth policy. What you see are 15-second clips of Something a leader said that was a real zinger, or, or uh, a really solid point that somebody made while everybody else was bickering, or something that was funny, right? And so um, it'll be interesting to see um, if politics is theater. Maxime Bernier is a master thespian. He's been around a long time, and it'll be interesting to see. I mean, he certainly brings more personality to those debates than we would have seen um, uh, without. So it'll be uh, it'll be entertaining if it's nothing else. For sure. All right. So before we talk about actual policy, which, while I wish it was the most important part of an election, is in a lot of ways the least important part of an election, uh, at least to the vast majority of my fellow Canadians. An election Canadians, is no
0: time to talk about policy, Joy. That's,
1: that's very true. Important issues. Um, uh, we had a request come in via Twitter from Kyle Olson. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for listening. Uh, he wanted to hear about war rooms and how war rooms are used in an election. That that's a good question. Um,
0: so, of course, in in the campaigns I've been in, I haven't been in the the big war rooms. I've been on local campaigns, so mm-hmm. I actually don't have a lot of experience okay. with war rooms. I have some, some idea of what happens in a war room, but right. but I feel like you you might know more about this world. Sure. Well, we've been world.
1: we've been talking about war rooms a little bit in Alberta anyway, because now we've got the the Alberta Energy War Room. Right. Um, but war rooms in a political campaign, in in a large campaign like a federal campaign or a provincial campaign, are a little bit of a different kettle of fish that aren't very well understood by a lot of people, even people involved in politics uh, on the local level. And and the war room is not your central campaign's chief operations area. That's, That's the first thing that's important to point out. It's not the tour. It's not the room where they decide where the leader's going next. It's not the room where they crunch the polling numbers and figure out where to send money. It, it's not the central campaign. Your war room is a relatively smallish operation that is primed, that has carte blanche and all the money it could ever need. And it's for one reason and one reason only. And that is emergent issues and crisis management. I guess that's two issues. But emergent issues and crisis management not operations. So when this Time Magazine release came out of Justin Trudeau in brownface, it was the liberal war room that had to respond right away. Those were the people who shut off the cell phones and said, what do we do about this? What do we know? Is there more? Somebody get Justin on the phone. And, And so the war room gets involved when something goes wrong or when you're under attack. right? That's when the red phone starts to blink and somebody picks up and says, okay, here's what we're going to do. So what you've got in the war room essentially is you've got uh, a seasoned political operator, somebody who knows enough to know that nothing is worth panicking over because panicking is only going to make it worse. Okay? That is a bad role to have the kid who just barely... Has graduated with his bachelor's degree in political science. Okay, he is not the guy who picks up that phone. This is this is for the this is for the woman who's been on fifteen campaigns and can chew broken glass. She's the one who's picking up that phone and answering that call when it happens because she's going to keep everybody calm and figuring out what to do next. This is the place where you've got your communications professionals because messaging is super important when you need the war room, you need a quick response, and you need a response that is thinking three and four steps ahead. It wasn't me is not a response that comes out of the war room. It was me, I did it, I admit to that, there were also two other occasions, here's where they were, here's what happened, that's what your war room does. Okay, and the other thing that you have to have in your war room is you have to have researchers. And those researchers are not looking up policy. Those re- researchers are not reading the opposition's platform to come up with things to pick at. That's something that the main campaign does. These researchers are researching people. So what you do is you take your researchers, all your best researchers, you put them in a room, and you say, okay, there are five of you here. Okay? The two of you who are not the two best are gonna go and you're gonna research our opponents you don't put your best people on researching your opponents so they're gonna go and they're gonna research your opponents why don't you put your absolute best people on that because the Internet's also gonna help you right? yeah. there are there are 30,000 rabid partisans on Twitter regardless of which party you're with it might be more uh, who are doing that proposition research for you also So, you take people and you put them on because they may have access to resources that the general Twitterati do not have and they're going to find something. But then you take the three remainders, the three absolute best researchers you have, and you give them a very simple task. Your job is to dig up dirt on our own people. You have to research our people. Research our leader, start there, and work your way down. I want every embarrassing tweet, photo, video, quote in a student newspaper. I want to know what they dressed like for Halloween in second grade. I need to know more about these people than they remember about themselves. Because if there is a surprise in this campaign, if there is something that the opposition has before we have it, we are going to be caught flat-footed and being surprised in the war room is absolutely unforgivable. So these are the people, when we just go back to talk about the Trudeau incident for a little bit here, these are the people who should have known. And the fact that they didn't know and that they didn't have you know, a response under glass, bright glass, if this photo comes out, says that they did not put their very best people where they should have been, which was researching the leader. Because this was not a secret. This is not one thing that was on one person's phone. It wasn't Anthony Weiner sending an inappropriate photo to one person's cell phone. It was in a yearbook that at least half a hundred people had. And that was just the one photo. Not to speak of videos. Not to speak of other instances. So your war room people need to be prepared for these eventualities. That's their only job, and they are their happiest when they have nothing left to do. Because they've researched everybody, there will be no surprises, and the opposition's not coming up with anything that we weren't ready for. So we just sit here. The red phone never blinks, and the campaign trucks along as per usual. But the war room, is it, it's like life insurance. You hope never to use it, but you put the money into it, because if you need it, holy how do you need it in a hurry? So, let's,
0: uh, let's focus on the last piece that, that we were going to talk about today, uh, which, believe it or not, is policy. Policy? And, and I know, it's it, amazing
1: that it actually comes up during elections. Uh, not as often as I wish it did, but again, uh, politics is a show, and policy is the music that plays underneath So, um, you know, who can tell me who wrote the theme song to Star Trek, other than Kirk? Because I know Kirk knows it. Nobody. But you all know, it's Alexander Courage, by the way. All right. (laughs) So, policy. Kirk, uh, all the parties have come out with some manner of policy. I'm just going to, to read through these in order, and I'm just looking for a quick reaction to you. We've already gone over an hour today, so we don't want to keep these good folks up any longer. Um, I, know, I know you people are out there who complain about the length, but we only do this every few weeks. so. That's true. If, if we did this twice a week, uh, which we may do uh, eventually, uh, if we start like oh, Patreon make, or let's something. Oh, let's face it. They'd still be two hours long. Well, they oh. would be. They would be. Um, but because that's what you're happens. you and I'm me. Well, yes, that that is very true. I was famously described once as the only person with a longer elevator pitch than Nahed Menchi. So, I'm going to mention the policy. I'm just looking for a quick response from you, Kirk, as to how you think this will play or whether you even think it's a good idea. The liberals have promised to prohibit semi-automatic assault rifles and allow cities to ban handguns. What do you think?
0: Honestly, gun control is not nearly the issue it is to our neighbors to the south. So, you know, the... I think you're going to cause
1: more problems than you're actually going to solve with a policy like this. A mm-hmm. little, little bit of a strange thing to be focusing on? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the New Democrats have vowed to expand Medicare to include universal pharmacare coverage for everybody. What do you think? So, I mean, personally, I'm for this policy. I'd, mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd
0: actually like to see the medical system uh, expanded to include vision um, and and dental and all sorts of things. So... so Personally, I'm I'm on board with this. Um, I think I think the thing with with this is the NDP aren't going to win government. Mm-hmm. Um, what it may do, like like we know on on more extreme sides of policy, sometimes if somebody goes extreme left or extreme right, it moves the needle. Like the the, the view of what is reasonable can move a little bit from mm-hmm. from where it was. So I think I think to that degree, the NDP is going to help for help push forward maybe some changes to the healthcare system
1: by by really pushing for something like full pharmacare. Yeah. Well, let's not forget, the New Democrats came up with the idea of Medicare, but they were never the federal government. They just pushed the federal government of the day to a position where they had to adopt it because of what Tommy Douglas was doing in Saskatchewan. Right. But they didn't do that from the position of power in Ottawa. Um, the Conservatives. Uh, have uh, vowed to resurrect Harper-era refundable tax credits, two tax credits that I know I used at least a a little bit, and I suspect you did as well. Uh, These are refundable tax credits uh, for children's sports, up to $1,000 per child, and for arts and learning uh, instruction for children, up to $500 per child. What do you think? This this is a complicated
0: policy, and honestly, I could probably talk for an hour about... Uh, boutique tax credits versus other forms of of um, helping people with taxes and and all sorts of things. Um, certainly, in my life, this becomes useful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what we know from some research done on uh, on the tax credits that were done in the Harper era is that it didn't actually lead to a significant change in people enrolling their kids in these programs which is what 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 it was designed for right um it's it effectively just gave a tax break to those who already were doing it Mm -hmm. um so you know it's it's the type of thing where yeah again we could talk for hours it's it's going to play well to
1: their base for sure good well i mean tax cuts generally do um the green party uh, has vowed to phase out production in the Alberta oil sands by 2035. So that's, uh, for those of you keeping track at home, that's 16 years from now. No well, more oil so,
0: sands. So uh, I, think, I think it's interesting, you know, th- this can come off very boogeyman-ish for Alberta, right? Mm-hmm. Phase out the oil sands by 2035. Um, first of all, that's not going to happen, right? Like, let's face it, regard- even if the Greens formed government, that would not happen right there there are market forces in play that simply will not allow that but what's really interesting about the greens policy and the, and and what the greens are doing is they are effectively the only party who's actually talked about transition mm-hmm. right the greens aren't saying we're just going to eliminate it in in 2035 there's actually a plan to how to transition away from it which is far different than what we've seen from from uh say other other um like the the, what was it the the doctrine that the leap manifesto, manifesto, just pull the plug tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so, what's actually really interesting about the Greens and and you know we kind of alluded to it last time that they're actually talking more policy, is really that this is about a transition plan. This is about actually saying, okay, there will come a point where we do need to do something about this. So let's think about how we do that. How do we how do we move Alberta forward? How do we use the expertise? that exists in
1: Alberta currently, and put that into new technologies. Okay. All right. Uh, the People's Party uh, has vowed to repeal the Multiculturalism Act and eliminate all funding to promote multiculturalism.
0: I'm... I don't know. <laughs> it's uh, this it's is, bold. Uh, it's... This is this is I mean, this is why the People's Party is going to be successful in carving away some people from some other parties. And not just even the Conservative Party. There are there are definitely Conservatives in, in other places, but this is where they're gonna be successful, is is these
1: more extreme wedge issues. Mm-hmm. So it's doing what they want it to. Okay. All right. The Rhino Party. Uh, vows that they will rewrite the labor code in order to add one holiday per month. April 1st and the birthday of the party leader will become national holidays, and it will be forbidden to work the day after a holiday.
0: Well, I mean, as far as rhino party policies go, this is probably the least extreme policy I've ever seen. Uh, (laughs) um, You know, not really going to speak to it.
1: All right. I I think that uh, it would uh, certainly make for an interesting rewrite of the labor code. Absolutely, it would. All right. So, Kirk, uh, we're just about going to wrap up here. Uh, Before we do that, though, I do have to ask you, because we're 31 days from casting a paper ballot and it taking seemingly days to actually figure out who wins in some of these writings. So, um, you know, I will ask you, as I always do, um, online voting, a great idea. Or the greatest idea? No. All right. Now, before we go, um, as always, uh, you were a candidate for federal office. Um, you were... Uh, that, was, that was a long
0: time ago, Joey. It was a long time I ago. Was, I was a
1: lot younger and a lot more naive. Uh, there, that was many pounds ago, as I like to say. Um, tell me, uh, do you have any advice... For candidates who may be listening to this podcast right now
0: Well I, I think I think the, there's a lesson learned this week and it is if you've done something really stupid and you know about you know enough to know that you've done it multiple times, you probably should disclose it to your campaign manager. You probably should be having the discussion uh, and, and if you have not as a candidate had good discussion with your campaign manager of there might be some things, uh, and And whether or not you choose to disclose at that time or or have some other way at least have some mechanism so that the campaign can respond because in the end uh, we've all done stupid things, so just make sure that you've got that covered in, and you know how you're going to even even personally think about how you're going going to answer that you know being surprised on a plane and and doing kind of a uh, an apology on the plane is not really the way to do it, right? Like, you you need to know that you've done done something, and you need to know how you're going
1: to respond to it. Right, And and that's true not just politically. It's also true personally, because let's not forget, at the end of the day, after the votes are counted, there are still people in your life you have to answer to And this may be the first time that you've put yourself forward in a public way where people are going to start researching your background and researching things you've said or done or pictures you've taken or videos you're in. And you would hate to have to have that discussion with your mom or with your wife or your husband or your kids because something came out that you thought was locked in the vault forever. And you were completely unprepared for the fact that it came out. You need to prepare these people in your life. Because at the end of the day, whether or not we're winners or losers in these elections, we're humans. And Justin Trudeau had to call his kids and explain what was being talked about and why it was a stupid decision that he had done. And the fact that he didn't anticipate ever having to do that is, again, that's something that he's going to have to live with. All right, folks. So... Until the next time we record, which will be sooner than you might otherwise think, because we are in the middle of election, but it will not be next week, because I will be moving to uh, a beautiful new place, uh, still in the same riding, don't worry, Member of Parliament. Um, uh, but until next time, I have been the Enlightened Savage, Joey Oberhoffner. And I am still Kurt. Cur- and we remain the, the Unelectables. Electables. At least they